Welcome to series four of the Bold Flavors podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto, a B Corp certified company that loves food, data, people, technology, and the planet. We are currently delivering millions of meals every single week, and our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner. Our purpose is to have positive impact on people and the planet. And each week here on Bold Flavors, I'll be talking to top company founders, CEOs and business leaders about their journey so far, what makes them tick and how they achieve what they're achieving. I am talking to Guy today. He's the founder of Sneak, a cybersecurity company focused on the 50 million developer community globally. After a few years in the Israeli army, Guy moved into the tech startup space. He then quickly started his first company, which got acquired after less than two years. Sneak, his second company, is now seven years old, has 1,200 employees, and is valued at a crazy $10 billion, and he still loves what he does. In this episode, Guy and I will talk about his journey to founding two companies, his and Sneak's culture and values, and the shift from CTO to founder and CEO, and then getting a professionalized CEO in to run the company so that Guy can focus on product, vision, and strategy. Guy, obviously hugely uh, fascinated by your journey building a, I don't know, $10 billion valued company, mm -hmm. such a fascinating space. But before we talk about it, I would love to hear about Israel joining the IDF, spending three years in the military. How was that like? Uh, sure. So I'm uh, I'm born and raised in Israel, and in Israel, uh, Israeli service is mandatory. So three years is the is kind of the base for men, two years for women, and uh, I actually spent four and a half years uh, in the army in sort of the uh, kind of the the, the technology parts, sort of more cyber parts of uh, of the army. Look, overall, it was it was a good experience. You know, the way it works in Israel is that you know the army has at its disposal all the 16-year-olds in the country and has the opportunity to kind of filter people to the jobs they're best suited for. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, by the time you kind of get filtered and you go through all these uh, tests and such over your sort of 11th, 12th grade, you know, you 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 kind of hone in, uh, or rather, the army hones in on people that have aptitude in in different areas. And so, by the end of it, when you get into the group you're in. Uh, you work with people that are, are really good at whatever it is that you are doing. Uh, and that was the case uh, for me. And so I you know, was fortunate enough to, to really just kind of get to this place, which was working with very kind of high caliber individuals on, on really hard problems that you kind of got thrown into, you know, and, and kind of it helped instill a bit of uh, anything is possible. In fact, it's one of the sort of the EDMs things. There's, there's, there's no such thing as you can't do it. You know, it's a... <laughs> It means you haven't figured out how to yet. And so I, I, still some of my best friends and definitely some of the people I uh, appreciate the most come out of that uh, of that service coming out of it. So I have all sorts of kind of personal issues with the uh, military service as a whole and and with its impact on sort of Israel society. It's definitely not all goodness by any stretch of imagination. But I will say that in my journey, it, uh, it, it probably favored me uh, more than it hurt. I can only imagine. I mean, it does sound like massively impactful. And so you studied computer science before, and then you kind of effectively spent four and a half years crafting that trade. 
Uh, yeah, and I and I did. I, I never sort of formally studied it. I did. Uh, I was a you know I was a geeky kid. I would sort of you know learn to program in Pascal and you know mm-hmm. other ancient languages uh, back in uh, back at home. Uh, and then it's eighteen actually, like it's at the age of eighteen that I got into the army. Wow. And to an extent, it actually spared me the need to to get a degree after. You know, some of the alumni of where I was did go off to get degrees. You know, many were interested in even getting advanced degrees. But for me. The, the military service was enough to get into the tech industry. Mm. And, you know, in the tech industry, experience speaks louder than, than, than diplomas. And so as soon as you got in and you had, you know, a bit of a vouch for a while, I tried to do like this open university degree in the background mm. until I realized that it doesn't really matter at that point. Uh, and just but you've, you've done okay. Um, I've done okay anyway. Yeah. You know, I had to convince my dad of it. I, I was going <laughs> like to a, ask you. A doctor, like a... a doctor, uh, my dad's a doctor, a medical doctor, and my mom's a psychologist. So there's definitely an academic background at home. <laughs> and, uh, it took him a while to sort of stop uh, calling me out on not having completed the degree. My wife has a PhD, so I think on average in the household, we're okay. <laughs> One person in the household has succeeded. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. And I guess, you know, this is 20 years ago, computer science, coding, startups, internet, maybe <laughs> wasn't the flavor of the month. Um, yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was hard to uh, to grok a little bit, but also look as as parents, I've got two kids as well. You know, as parents, I think your view of what's good for your kids can't help but be anchored in in your knowledge growing up as as a person, as a child, as a as a young adult, and so. You know, I don't, uh, I don't hold it against them, and I'm sure I'm going to make similar, you know, silly mistakes uh, or you know, uh, pushing the right in the wrong directions uh, when my kids are that age. Um, and I don't know if this is true, but I read a study, Harvard Business Review, on the Israeli Defense Forces, and and the study was pretty much all armies in the world for 40 years believed that the IDF was best at recognizing talent and spotting leadership potential. And then 40 years later, somebody really smart realized that by telling somebody that they have potential, they are X percent more likely to actually achieve. And, and so, but it took a long time to realize that, but it was quite fascinating to link yeah. to it, um, to what you just said. And I think there's acknowledgement, but there's also just the surrounding. So when you put high potential individuals in a certain field, it's important to kind of distinguish that high potential is different for different tasks. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm careful to not say that they find the best people because mm-hmm. it's not the best, it's the people that are best for a type of activity. And that could be commando units or you know, the uh, multitasking skills you need to be a, a pilot sort of, a, of, of, a, of a fighter plane, fighter jet. And it could be, you know, in sort of military, in, in technology parts, in, in cyber, it could be language skills. But when you when you put someone with high aptitude and you surround them with other people mm. that are high aptitude, I think everybody levels up and your, your rate of personal growth goes out. And so in, in those sort of four and a half years that I was in the army, I think I grew in terms of mm-hmm. uh, really kind of all fronts so much faster than in any other, even if I was doing kind of the same job, whether it would people kind of a little bit less qualified. And I try, you know, it sort of left a mark in, in what I seek out mm-hmm. uh, in employment. It made it very obvious throughout my career when I found myself in a surrounding where I felt like I was, you know, not surrounded by people that mm-hmm. I could really kind of learn from. And then I did what I could to uh, to change that, either change role or, or sort of change company at the time. And if you think about your values in life today, uh, Sneaks company values, what do you think is linked to 
I don't know, your parents, your upbringing, the IDF. I'm just fascinated how you think about that. I think, um, you know, there, there's this uh, saying that, you know, companies are uh, are created in the, uh, in the image of the founder. <laughs> and so I think uh, I think when you uh, when you look at, uh, at Sneak, uh, I can see all sorts of uh, examples of how it resembles what matters to me. And it's not by chance. You know, it is uh, uh, clearly some of those were very intentional. And I, I will say Sneak is now 1,200 people. Wow. And, to an extent, it outgrows you. It's like a kid. I, I really find myself relating to the analogy of a startup as a as a child, you know, mm-hmm. like including the adolescent phase, <laughs> including the fact that it evolves and hopefully at some point it's better than you and it sort of you know grows and uh, uh, and it's definitely different. So I don't think it maybe represents me individually as much today, although many of these things are anchored. And so when I look at, at me, I mean, I think there's a bunch of things in my in my personality that uh, have embedded in the culture of the company. So, you know, I care deeply. So we have four values and I can I can kind of map all four of them to uh, <laughs> to my sort of uh, traits, right? So one of those values is care deeply. And, you know, I am that. I'm sort of a highly emotive uh, person, you know, anywhere from wanting everybody to like me to, to really caring about the mission and the things that I do and caring about the peers. And I don't, I'm not good at a nine to five job. I can't kind of go to the work and come back and sneak, you know, very much is like that. You can't just just sort of come and do the job and come back. You mm. kind of need to at the pace and the energy in the company to sort of relate to it. The second is uh, is one team. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, that to me is more based on my work kind of history. So I worked at an Israeli company that got acquired by a Canadian company. Mm-hmm. And I moved over to Canada and lived there. And sort of the, the liaison a little bit between these two amazing teams that really didn't get along. Oh, wow. uh, there was so much of like us versus them between the teams. Mm. It was painful. It was painful to watch. And I was often in the middle. And so when I founded Snake, I I did start it with two great co-founders in Israel, which I intentionally went out and, and, and sought out because I wanted to tap into my network in Israel, but I was based in London. And so we started with these two locations, but I was very paranoid around, like, uh, <laughs> around creating an us versus them mentality. And so... We really worked hard to make sure that it's one team. We, we made rules like no team will be co-located. And so even though, even when we were small, teams would be split between London and Tel Aviv, which oh, wow. got a few remotes, which, which was, you know, a pain in the moment, but it instilled the right behaviors and, and camaraderie. We would fly people from one to the other to do these like all hands early on and invested in it. And, and, and that really has stayed as the company grew. And so everything, the go-to-market product, mm-hmm. like the company is very kind of a, holistic you know we have a, a ship it mentality which might reflect on my impatience uh and bias i also philosophically kind of think or what you know when i think about startups and i think about building it that there's almost a, an element of arrogance in kind of getting in your cave and coming out with something wondrous two years later like it implies mm-hmm. that you think mm-hmm. that you've kind of figured it out and you really know the answer yeah and i don't you know i i have directions and so i believe in in iteration you know i believe in shipping something and then iterating, you know, seeing what happens, optimizing for feedback, optimizing for learning. Uh, mm. And so the whole company has a very strong delivery muscle. You know, sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it goes against us, but it's a strong, like, ship it mentality. Yeah. And then we have a fourth value, which is a, it's, it's called a think bigger, uh, mm-hmm. which is a, it's, it's a little bit more of a learning, you know, a bit more aspirational. But I would also sort of say that, uh, you know, when uh, at some point when my first startup, so the Snake is my second startup, when my first startup was acquired, and I sat there and I was thinking about the next role that I had at Akamai, that was the CTO role opportunity there. And I was surprised at myself that I am, I never thought I was one to sort of 
seek the next mountaintop. And uh, it turned out I am. <laughs> it turned out that I uh, I do look at it, uh, and so like I always look for for uh, for some some greater, some different, some uh, something, uh, some impact that personal growth has. And so, anyways, a bit of a ramble here, but I think each of these values I can tie to my personality, and and even more, you know, I'm a talker. Company is very verbose, very <laughs> communication. I intentionally kind of invest in that. So there's a bunch of those. Uh, I love it. Um, I mean, our values are dream, deliver, care. And so very, very similar. And then we have ownership principles. So each of the values is brought alive via ownership principles, three. And so in total, there are nine principles. And one of them is think big, obviously under dream. But I need to change it to think bigger. That's so much cooler. Love that idea. I, I, I love the sort of the, uh, the the hierarchy there. And I, and I also, I really like the dream uh, methodology, you know, in that uh, yeah, think bigger, we felt like it was a bit more playful. And actually, it works really well in a conversation. It's like you have a conversation, you think about, well, think bigger. What is? Absolutely. Consider it um, copied, yes. <laughs> and it's a, it's a great point. Thank you for sharing. And then, so so you mentioned you joined an Israeli tech company that then got acquired. So was that the first job after the military? Yeah, correct. So I, you know, I, I went, I was in the army during the bubble. And so I sort of saw all these uh, mm. high flying salaries come and then go. <laughs> and I, uh, I got out of the army, still got into a good, you know, like, again, the sort of the, the kind of diploma of potential and the experience that I've had in the army helped me get a pretty good job right away mm -hmm. as a software developer. So I uh, build software. I was a developer. I, I, you know, over the years, and even back then, I, I think of myself as a good leader and a mediocre manager. You know, I've mm -hmm. never, uh, mm -hmm. I've never really felt like I really excel at being a manager. And it never fully, fully drew me in. I think even as a leader, you succeed through people, mm -hmm. but the act of actually managing and and what's entailed in it is not something I'm terribly good at. And if I'm honest, it's, it's not the thing that gives me the most energy. And so through the career, so I was a developer. I did some small dev. I led teams, but I didn't really try to move up the ranks of sort of management. And then this Canadian company acquired the Israeli company. It's a startup acquiring a startup. Mm -hmm. And I moved to uh, to Ottawa, Canada. And uh, I moved there for a year. I didn't. I couldn't place Ottawa on a map when I uh, when I moved. There was a bit of a bait and switch. Some conversations of moving to Boston, or so I moved for a year, thinking we'll move to Boston with my, uh, uh, you know, my girlfriend and I, kind of married before we moved, and then we kind of, uh, as a couple, moved. We, we ended up staying for ten uh, years in, wow. uh, in Canada. But uh, that company got acquired by IBM. I moved from development to products management. So as I was trying things out, uh, I moved around. In fact, there was a step in between. So I, I, I've, I've always uh, favored uh, horizontal movement, take a new project, try things out, because I didn't mm -hmm. really want, I wanted to grow my impact, but I didn't want to grow management. I noted that I want to be a product manager, but uh, there was no job available, product management, but especially at the time, mm -hmm. there weren't that many. There were very few product managers to engineers. And there was a job in tech sales available, dealt with more complex problems and such, because I was, you know, came, came from development, I was proficient in the product. And so I took I took it, uh, and for about six months uh, I was a sales engineer, which I found enlightening, and also clarified to me that I do not want that job as a, as a long term job. But uh, I felt like I learned a ton during that time. I traveled a ton during that time as well, uh, and then a product management job came up, and I, I kind of seized it pretty uh, pretty quickly. And I, I'm I'm happy I took that job, but again, it was also a clarification that uh, it wasn't my career path. As I might have mentioned, like IBM acquired that startup. I continued as product management. At some point, I asked a mentor, actually, 
whether they think product management is a is a good path to uh, to a CTO. You know, I, I had in my mind that I want to be a CTO. I didn't really know what that means, but you know, I kind of thought that that's what I want. And uh, the advice I got uh, from him back then was that the best way to become a CTO is to found a company and call yourself a CTO. Um, and uh, and so that's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, like, had you had you never considered founding a company until that point, or? <laughs> It's a good question, you know, like I've always perceived myself as someone, you know, uh, ambitious, but but almost like uh, too rational mm -hmm. uh, to to do it. You know, when I, it took me a little while to get to that leap of faith. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so that I had that advice that sort of sat in the back of my mind. But then what also happened was in IBM, I had a very comfortable job. So I went to product management. I didn't enjoy being a product manager in IBM. I, mm. uh, you know, that it, too much process not enough kind of a, at least in that group that I was in, not enough sort of forward thinking and kind of opportunity to lead. That was more of an innovation driven uh, product manager. Mm -hmm. So I took this architect role, super flexible, well-paid. I could do all sorts of cool projects and I was depressed. Uh, I was really upset because I couldn't, I couldn't get, like I could work on whatever I wanted, but the, the, the chasm, sort of the gap between between those and bringing them to market and having impact was so great at IBM that mm. I got into this, like, I, I felt like my work doesn't matter. It doesn't matter mm. how cool and sort of a fine, I accumulated patents in IBM, <laughs> but like, who cares? You know, there's no impact here. Mm. And so the two of them combined and, and um, I actually had, it sounds maybe contrarian, but the, uh, uh, I had a, a baby born. My my son, my my, mm -hmm. my first son was born, and around that time, I I decided I want to start a company. And what I did was I, when my my son was three months old, I took a paternity leave from IBM, which in Canada you can take it's unpaid, but you can take as much as nine months wow. off, which kind of acted as a bit of a safety net. So I said I'm gonna take that time off, mm -hmm. you know, maybe spend a bit of time with my 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 son. So kind of use that opportunity, but also think about what I want to do next and, and explore, see if there's anything. And it took me about sort of three or four months to sort of settle on the right idea and maybe another month to just be comfortable enough to quit. The IBM system didn't quite know how to let me quit while on paternity leave. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then I resigned and I, I started the company. So I, I kind of used, I guess, the moment of change to, uh, to trigger an action. Mm -hmm. Um, and, I, and my decision was to start a company, not driven by an idea. My, the decision was, I'm going to start something. Mm -hmm. And then I just went on to explore ideas. And then so on day one, you're achieving one of your goals. You're becoming CTO. You made it. <laughs> When did you feel like the startup would be a success? And well, maybe talk me through, first talk me through kind of the rationalization of what type of business to start. How, how did you approach it? So it's a good question. So I was trying to think about what do I know that is a little bit unusual uh, in the space. And uh, where I landed was that in the world of security, we, we built good technology. So, so those years were really, uh, we're building application security uh, mm -hmm. products. And we've done, you know, dynamic and static uh, analysis of software-defined vulnerabilities, which is actually sort of similar to what we do in Snake. I'll get back mm -hmm. to this. But, but today we do it with a dev approach. And so... I felt like the state of the art in terms of analyzing applications and security was higher than it was elsewhere. And I tried to seek out where else would it be useful. Uh, and so I tried a bunch of places. Accessibility was one, but it felt like there was no revenue opportunity there. Quality and QA was another. And again, it kind of felt like it was really hard to build a successful business in that. 
Uh, and then performance, uh, I ran into performance, which was a kind of a lively space at the time. I think New Relic was just coming out and like the more modern kind of modes of measuring web performance. So making websites faster. Mm-hmm. And I felt like that was a place and I, I was like the nerd in his cave, you know, and I kind of was in my room writing code for six months. I think I was just sort of, uh, you know, uh, building those out, you know, surveyed the market, found a few other companies that were doing things that were similar, started learning it. I had my would-be co-founder. I was kind of bouncing ideas off him, Mike, uh, and he was already he had he had founded Watchfire. He had founded the, mm-hmm. the company that the Canadian company that acquired that that startup in the first place, and so eventually landed on this notion of making websites faster through this like inline compiler sits in, you know in between the browser and your website and kind of modifies mm-hmm. the page to make it functionally equivalent but uh, but faster. And I, and I got going and basically for, uh, so, so that's how I landed on that, that idea. For the first five or six months, I was, as I said, I was just coding. It was mostly me writing code. I went to a bunch of people that I knew, tried to kind of recruit them. Generally, most of them said no. Uh, it even became a bit of a joke and some of the sort of the uh, old kind of stomping rounds in which like, okay, who else, who hasn't been asked by guys uh, uh, to come join? <laughs> Fortunately, managed to get a couple of good people, notably when, when, uh, when Mike joined, uh, when he was sort of officially convinced and kind of came over and joined me as a co-founder and CEO, I was CTO. Mm-hmm. I think that was a big vote of confidence that sort of helped uh, draw people in. So at the beginning, it's hard. It's doubly hard when you've moved away from where most of my network was in Israel. Mm-hmm. But it, because of the scars I just had, I didn't want to be in Ottawa, Canada and hire people in Israel. Definitely not to start. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a bunch of things that we did that I would do differently <laughs> back then. But uh, uh, what we did correctly the product was still pretty hidden but we tried to make the pub the company public mm-hmm. very quickly so for instance the the solution made websites faster and early early on we basically put a web page in which you can put your email and your url and we would send you a before and after mm-hmm. uh report showing your site and how much faster we can do it now behind the scenes we were pretty hacky about how we would do it. You know, there was far less automation involved uh, than maybe what you would want, but it kind of got the lead generation going early on. We had, a, I remember like National Geographic, you know, that was like the big uh, the big win at the time. They didn't end up purchasing, but you know, they were sort of a good lead uh, at the time. Well, uh, and it helped us hone not just the product, but also the messaging mm-hmm. before the product was fully baked. And then, you know, we built those out. We also took a firm partnership approach. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the technology was split such that the agent that sat in the line of fire, very lightweight. And then there was like a smarter system mm-hmm. working asynchronously in the background. And that made it very um, easy to connect it to all sorts of content delivery networks like Akamai and, and others, and to uh, uh, load balancers, of ADCs, application delivery controllers. And so we built uh, a whole bunch of partnerships with them. And so those partnerships fairly quickly uh, evolved into acquisition uh, conversations. In, in the process, we raised a million dollars. Mm-hmm. Then we had a, a convertible note for another million dollars because there was so much demand. And you know, it's uh, you know those numbers sound kind of almost uh, almost funny. Uh, well, I mean, you, ra- you I think you raised almost a billion for Sneak, <laughs> but I'm still sure that the one million back then mattered more psychologically. I think it was a big deal to kind of get it. You know, we were only, we ended up getting acquired when we were only 13 people. I'm happy that we didn't raise it. I think when you raise money, you reduce optionality. Mm -hmm. And so when you really have a lot of unknowns, raising less is uh, kind of helps keep you in the game, give you options. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, yeah, so Akamai acquired us. It was, it was, you know, it was like a bittersweet moment, you know, on one hand, you know, we barely got started and yet right away we got acquired. On the other and hand, and can I just like yeah. point out the point you just made? Because it's a fascinating one. Presumably what you mean is you're at ideation stage, then you raise money behind an idea and therefore you're kind of forced down a path and you have to pursue the idea. Is that kind of what you alluded to? Yeah, I think uh, at any phase that you're doing it, then you need funding. You know, the whole notion of venture is that you are getting money before you've delivered results so mm -hmm. that you can uh, explore the next phase faster. So the beginning, you know, when you're ideating, you could, people could already raise money uh, to ideate, but typically they would have done most of that ahead of time uh, unless they're sort of quite accomplished and, and, and people would invest in them without an idea. Mm -hmm. But then once you have an idea, you're exploring how to bring it to market. You're sort of, you're building the product, you're trying it out and you need to raise money for that because you need to hire people and you need to grow mm -hmm. it. But I think it's important to understand what is it that you're trying to learn with this sort mm -hmm. of tranche of cash. Because while you have a theory, that theory might not hold. And so people, when they think about raising money, they think about dilution. They think about the dynamics with investors. They, they think about all these things, which are, are important. Mm. But I feel like uh, the primary thing you lose when you raise money is optionality. You lose mm. The, every time of freedom, you anchor yeah. your valuation at a higher point, you need to go further because before you can choose to either bail or sell or raise the next funds. And so to me, every time you raise money, the key question should be sort of looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, are you ready to stay signed up to this journey of growing the company for another X years, right? Mm -hmm. is, is, is that right? Are you confident that that's what you want to do? And then on top of that, yes, you should think about dilution and all of that, but really, really it's around options. Love the point. Degrees of freedom, being able to double loop towards the ideation phase. Yeah, really, really powerful point. Yeah, exactly. The other, the other related point that I would say is that I think another maybe different view that I have would be the, the worst case scenario for me, and I think for most companies, is not to crash and burn. Mm -hmm. The worst case is to get stuck. You know, because but really like the most precious asset you have is is time. Mm. So for me, the worst case scenario was to get to a company that is like, you know, doing five millions in, in, in ARR and is growing like 20% year on year. Sort of a good enough business that you can't just bail. You can't just sort of go away. But it's also not what you signed up for when you start mm -hmm. the company. And so that's the worst case scenario. And so try to put yourself in a position where either you can you can cut loose <laughs> at that point in time and similarly when things are working i think hedging is not the right strategy and you know that's kind of what we've done at snake here which is you want to you want to fuel the flame and you want mm -hmm. you want to go you want to you want to run you know just optimize for 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 that kind of top resource which is time your time a really powerful and so going back you're having 13 employees, you're getting acquired. How did it feel? What happened psychologically? How many years? Like, just walk us through so the timeline. That was very quick. So it, mm -hmm. was, it was probably about two years mm -hmm. uh, that the company, uh, you know, like I, I, I got that paternity leave started in January. You know, I was uh, uh, officially resigned in May. Company uh, was incorporated in July. I think. Well, no, actually, I guess uh, maybe we've done something right away there. And then, you know, we fundraised in September and in the following January, we were acquired or February, uh, we got acquired. So like not th four months after, but rather. Uh, and so, 
you know, call it 16 months from fundraise to acquisition. Wow. And about two years from kind of the start of the company. And did you pop the champagne bottle? You celebrated? Or did you feel empty and, you know, you felt like, oh, I didn't unlock the full potential of this vision? Or, like, you know, emotionally, um, it must have been fascinating. So, so it's an interesting moment. So I was I was very happy at the moment. You know, first of all, we were fortunate to have several bidders uh, mm -hmm. for the company, which which helped raise the number a bit, but also forced me to uh, to have conviction mm -hmm. around where do myself and the product and the team should go. Mm -hmm. uh, and we picked the one. The, there were two offers that were comparable, you know, with slightly different terms. So you kind of had judgment call. Mm -hmm. On it, sometimes if one offer is clearly bigger, fiduciary responsibility would push you down, uh, picking a higher offer no matter what. But uh, in this case, you know, we had some choice and we picked the offer that we thought was the right place. We felt like in Akamai, the team would thrive. We can build a base in uh, in Ottawa. Uh, the product itself was going to be kind of the premier product in the web performance suite in mm -hmm. Akamai. And me personally had an opportunity to become the CTO of the web performance business at Akamai, which was accounting for uh, for nearly half of the, the revenues and even more mm -hmm. than that for the profits of the company. Mm -hmm. um, and so it felt like it was right. And, and I feel like in hindsight also, we've made the right decision. That branch became you know, a top branch for, for Akamai. Some of the newest products came out of that, continued to mm -hmm. come out of that branch for, for Akamai. A lot of people stayed for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was the right move. For me financially, Look, it sorted me out. It sort of moved me into a place that, you know, I couldn't, you know, I was kind of uh, laughing that I could retire in Ottawa, but then I moved to London and I can't, like, <laughs> it wasn't enough to retire in London, but it was still a place of financial freedom. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm, I'm in favor of it. I mean, when I talk to startups, you know, my view is it's not wrong to do a quick flip. It's, it's totally okay. It's a, it's, it's good for the company that acquires you. You have to think about the team. You have to think about the vision and the product. And you have to think about yourself. Mm -hmm. I think what's wrong, coming back maybe to the to the fundraising strategy, is when is when people think they're they're they say they're going big and and they're doing that, they're really quite uncertain and what they really wish for. Mm -hmm. Flip. I think mm -hmm. different ideas mm -hmm. lend themselves better to to one versus the other. You, you know, your time horizon is different. And, uh, and what's most common is that people build ideas that really have a fairly short runway mm -hmm. and they think they're building something that's very big when in practice, they're anchored in the present, not in the future, right? Mm -hmm. I think if you're going big, you want to anchor in the future. You want to build a product that is uh, the best thing that in five years time, there would be even more demand to your approach, to your needs. And then you want to chart a path you need to survive to get there, you know? And so you kind of need to chart a path to the present. If you're looking to to make a quick flip, then it's more that you need to, uh, you know, uh, a friend uses the phrase, uh, swim ahead of the sharks. You know, you, mm -hmm. you can look at big companies, you can find features or capabilities that are obvious that they need to have, but they're big and they're slow. And so you can build that ahead of them and then they can acquire you. And you, you take more of a partnership approach. So they're close to you and they like you. And I don't think that's flawed. It's just a different strategy. Com completely fair point. Yeah. And so you made money, you could retire, not in London, but anywhere else. What what was next then? How did you so, do well, I guess, and also what was the mental model to decide what, what's next? 
Yeah. So I, you know, I, I generally, I'm not very good at being comfortable. You know, when I, uh, when I'm comfortable, I, uh, <laughs> you know, I quickly change that. I, I, I think that when you're comfortable, you're not growing, you know, and I, uh, I like growing, learning. And so I got actually a great growth opportunity in Akamai. Akamai is a big company. I, you know, I have all sorts of criticism, but there's a lot to like, a lot of smart people around talk about people that I can learn from mm-hmm. uh, in the exec team of the web performance business uh, unit, especially and so my next three or so years, uh, three and a half years, we're at Akamai, a CTO for the web performance business. Uh, well, after about six months, I moved to, to that role. And, and it was really, really interesting, you know, built, uh, tried to uh, like acquire uh, a couple of companies over there and, you know, be part of some, some acquisitions that actually uh, took place, started doing some angel investing. So really that period was a lot of uh, growth of like larger scale operations, mobilizing organizations, understanding innovation problems at scale. At IBM, I was, I think, more of a small pawn. I couldn't really see mm. many of these things. And so I think they were very educational. I moved with Akamai. Uh, the family moved to London as a test drive and eventually decided to stay uh, to kind of boost the, the business in EMEA. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and at the end, you know, there, there was still like a bit of a thought moment at the end of three years, which was like a financial point in time and also logical mm. uh, that, you know, got me thinking. We also had moved to London. And so we had to decide whether we're staying or not. And I got the itch to do another startup. Um, And so once again, it wasn't a decision about one idea or the other. I initially said, I'm going to take a year off. Uh, (laughs) When I decided to resign in like January, I said, I'm going to take a year off. By March, when I actually resigned, I was kind of (laughs) for uh, the right kind of opportunity. I said, I'm going to take six months off. It's going to be great. And then I had a four-month notice period because of the terms in the acquisition and things like that. And so I officially was out something like July 1st. And I incorporated July 9th. Uh, <laughs> so as I said, I'm not very good with uh, being comfortable. So during that time, I I guess the primary guiding factors, I knew I wanted to start a company. I knew I wanted to call myself CEO to try that out. I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. Says, you know, Mike is amazing, my co-founder from, uh, from Blaze. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a bit of like proving to myself that it wasn't, it wasn't him, you know, that it wasn't uh, just him, you know, that it was mm-hmm. uh, something I can do again. And also I wanted to go big, you know, I felt like the previous journey was great, was right for the time, but I wanted a bigger impact and I wanted mm-hmm. an idea that could, that could be big. And so I explored a bunch of ideas and eventually landed on developer security and mm-hmm. this notion of taking some of my learning from the web performance experience at Akamai and seeing how DevOps tools work to my previous stomping rounds of security, uh, where we always had this aspiration of getting developers to build security into their into their kind of daily lives, mm-hmm. daily work, and failed. You know, like we succeeded financially, but we can actually get developers to embrace it. And I felt uh, there was an opportunity, a window of time of building, you know, a, a DevOps-minded, a developer-focused company that provides security solutions, a developer tooling company that tackles security. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that was a big idea. It was like, you know, what's the what's the total addressable market here? Well, it's the multiplication of the number of developers out so there. 50 million? Spend, you know, and so, yeah, but whatever math you have, it's definitely mm. tens of millions and growing. Mm. So big aspiration, mm. come into it with like Huge. a, you know, either, either uh, with the willingness to crash and burn um, and, uh, Went uh, went in, you know, maybe a little bit, a bit of a missed opportunity, maybe to take some time off, but uh, but that was uh, that was what happened. And so, did you tell yourself, look, I give myself 
you know, I don't know, 18 months or um, I need to achieve XYZ milestone to prove that this is actually a viable business? Well, how did it feel? Because this time you're much more comfortable, you know, the first time you're going from high paycheck to no paycheck, huge motivation. This one is psychologically different. So how, how did that feel? So it, it definitely felt more confident. I felt like I knew what I was doing a lot mm -hmm. more. Uh, it was also very evident in the fundraising. You know, I had been angel investing with some co-investors. I really like Bold Start, which is a seed stage investor from mm -hmm. uh, from uh, New York. You know, they they invested in. There were sort of a small check in uh, Blaze before, and they led. Uh, but I also uh, they led Sneak's uh, seed round. But also, I've I've sort of seen them around. So. The, the history has made it easy to fundraise. It made it easier to hire mm. and give me more confidence in knowing what is it that I'm building. Mm -hmm. I think the primary, I don't know that we gave like a timeline. I think I just had a lot of confidence that I can do mm -hmm. it. I uh, <laughs> Maybe false, maybe right. But uh, uh, probably the key decision that was made, you know, beyond you know what I mentioned around uh, opening a branch in Israel, but sort of investing and in, in making sure that it's one team was to to really be tunnel vision focused on getting developers. So that was a phrase that I was saying back then, which is, you know, nothing is easy in startup world, but generally in the world of security, getting to revenue is relatively easy or like many people achieve it. The real hard problem is getting to developers. It's mm -hmm. actually demonstrating the developers will embrace a security solution if you build the right company, if you're mm -hmm. the right tools. And so we were laser focused on that in the language, in the branding, in the, in the color scheme of the website, in the alignment with investors and talking mm -hmm. to them. You know, we weren't chasing revenue at all. We were, we were really seeking out and getting developers to embrace it. And, and sorry, just for everyone listening, the point you're making is, I mean, cybersecurity budgets are huge and somebody will feed you anyways. And is that kind of why it's easy to get the revenue? Yeah, and I don't want to misrepresent. It's not easy, easy to get to revenue and security, but relatively speaking, especially if you're experienced and you're in mm. space, you're tackling a problem you you know is a problem, mm. then security budgets are 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 high. A lot of investors have these CISO networks that you know can get you in front of them. Decisions are security is nebulous, you know, it mm. doesn't really uh it's it's very hard to quantify a bunch of things. And so mm -hmm. there's just like it or not, there's a lot of room for for opinion and subjective assessments. In mm. fact, it's one of the things I don't like about security. And so sometimes if you get the right authorities, the right, you know, uh, the right credentials mm. on it, it's easier to get the first. Well, over time, to grow a security company, you need a good product, you need kind of good skills. But getting those first checks relatively compared to other industries, for instance, if I compare to, to DevTools, in DevTools, it is relatively easy to get a bunch of developers of the many, many out there that like what you're doing, and you could get to thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of developers to, to be adopting your tool, but it's oftentimes very, very hard to get them to pay. Um, so security is flipped. And I guess if I fast forward a little bit, you know, Snick's goal was to say, well, let's do the thing that is easy in DevLand and hard in security. And then once we nail that, let's actually layer on what is a little, a little easier. Uh, in security and, and connect the worlds. And, and today, with the bottom-up motion and sort of this, uh, the, this uh, product-led approach of getting developers onto the SNCC platform, mm. fueled by the kind of revenue opportunity and, and kind of business criticality of security that it just keeps on growing, uh, along with, I'd like to think, you know, good product execution and an actual good offering that does the job right and, and a company you want to work with, those kind of end up as like a, a double propeller, right? As sort of a, as, as two tailwinds that combine 
to to fuel our our somewhat silly growth rate. So, <laughs> and at what stage did you realize, wow, this is actually taking off? So, um, th th there's a very clear point actually. So, uh, so Snick, for the first two years into Snick's existence. We had tens of thousands of developers, I think it was tens of thousands, using the product, and we had 100,000 in annual recurring revenue. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not awesome. You know, if you're sort of doing the math, you know, in a SaaS business, two years in, millions of dollars down, 100,000 in revenue is not great. But really around that time, the curve started hitting. Uh, and in practice, what happened was during the first year, we've succeeded in the thing that we really kind of set our attention to, which is mm -hmm. breaking through to developers. And we really tuned the company around that. Um, and But we had the false assumption that developers will actually pay <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. for uh, for that product, which was a very classic dev tooling pitfall. T today, they're actually starting to pay. We have a team edition and all that. It was actually like, a, I think this is changing, but six plus years ago, that was not the case. Mm -hmm. So we had to figure out how do we stay true to the developer, but expand to also satisfy the needs of security people, which we, we were successful at getting conversations with security people because of the promise of developer adoption. Mm -hmm. But but we, we didn't have what they needed uh, from us. We didn't have enough breadth of support. We didn't mm -hmm. have enough uh, some of their specific needs like governance and such. Mm -hmm. So we had to evolve those capabilities I think this is a repeatable uh, learning when you talk about when your user differs from your buyer. And mm -hmm. so I think when you're doing a bottom-up motion, then really you are catering to the user. That's the whole idea is that you get the user bought into the product mm -hmm. and they're loving it. But if they're not your buyer, then you need to also understand what are the needs of the buyer from the product. Even if they're not the primary user, they're probably using the product to, mm -hmm. to an extent. What do they need? to actually justify a purchase. And then subsequently, or maybe in parallel, you need to figure out the journey from the user to the buyer, which we do both through the company, get the developer to get us the security person mm -hmm. uh, and throughout bound. And so the first year was really around getting the developers, getting the users. And then the second year was around also cracking the, uh, the, the needs of the buyer. And once mm -hmm. we got both right, the hyper growth started. Mm -hmm. And before we go into that, so, you are CEO. Did you have this chip on your shoulders? I have to be like Mike. What would Mike do? Or, you know, at what stage did you feel like I'm Guy, I'm the CEO, this is me being authentic? Or, yeah, how did you think about being a CEO? Yeah, so, so I think, uh, you know, first of all, like I, I'm no longer the CEO. I brought on someone else to uh, to do it. But I um, I don't know that the piece about sort of, you know, Mike being CEO uh, sat with me too long. I think it was just a motivator for me at the beginning. We're different people and we're mm -hmm. running it. And so I was pretty pleased with uh, just sort of raising it. But I do think it's one of the things that nudged me towards doing another round, you know, trying mm -hmm. it, trying it again. Mike, to be fair, is an investor and uh, and I seek his advice wherever I can. But, you know, we're not the same, you know, like every person has different uh, different competencies. What has happened, and this is actually like another couple of years in, as the, as the growth was already happening, I felt like the company was doing really well. This is like deep in, uh, in hyper growth mode. We're sort of, you know, growing by large multiples. I felt, looking around, two things. One was that I 
don't want to be a large company CEO. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of not what I see myself at. I remember seeing this movie on a plane of like, I think like Will Smith was getting in front of some group of uh, people and talking about the success of it. And, and instead of sort of feeling like, oh, that's awesome. That's me. I was like, I don't want to be that person. <laughs> it's not a, a bit misleading because I still get up in front of the company. <laughs> but uh, anyways, I felt like I don't want to be a big public company CEO. Mm-hmm. That's not my identity. And so that was kind of one. Mm-hmm. Second is that I felt that while I was doing a, a good job as CEO, I think I was, you know, results kind of spoke for it. I definitely wasn't bad. I saw a lot of flaws and I felt like I could get someone to do a better job there. And on the flip side, I'm I'm like a product visionary. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think I'm pretty good at, at sort of seeing around the corner and sort of seeing what comes next. And I didn't have any time to bring that skill to force. And so I had all these cases in which I saw people needing my support in mm-hmm. that front and me not having time to give it to them. And then all of those culminated with the opportunity to bring uh, to that, that someone who was on my board and I've known for 15 years, who was the CEO of Watchfire back from the beginning of it, mm-hmm. uh, Peter McKay, was temporarily available, was briefly available there, having finished kind of a previous uh, uh, job. And I felt like it was a, a, a window of opportunity to uh, to get him onto the company and, uh, and, and come on. It was a big downsize uh, for him compared to his previous. He was basically moving from having grown a company from $400 million to a billion dollars in revenue in wow. three years. And this is like, you know, we're, we're like a single digit mm-hmm. record <laughs> at the time or something like that, you know, maybe, maybe just into the double, but he, you know, but he loves building and he kind of, he, he knew the company and he saw the potential. And so fortunately he came in to do it. So at that point, I brought on, like, you know, we brought on Peter as CEO and I took this uh, elusive president title. It doesn't really matter. The founder title is really the, uh, you know, there's always a bit of a transition, but I think we settled into a really, really good partnership. And now he's, he's kind of scaling the company, he's growing it. And I get to focus my time, still full-time operation on the company, Mm -hmm. uh, thinking about, you know, strategy, about acquisitions, around the next product, around uh, uh, scaling our culture, uh, and, you know, we work together, but, you know, he's running the company and I get to focus on a, on a later horizon. I, I, I love kind of the focus on what is it that only you can do? What is it that gives you energy and concluding this is the best way forward? Um, well done. And, and if you dimensionalize in a nutshell, kind of how the company has changed from early days to 1,200 people, 10 billion valuation or whatever the number may be, you know, what, what are kind of the dimensions of change that are most pronounced? Well, the company has, has, has evolved a lot, right? So we've, uh, you know, for perspective, we've gone in annual increments from 23 people to 84, if I remember the number correctly, to 250 to 450 wow. to, I think, about 1,100 at the beginning of this year, or a little over 1,000, uh, and now about 1,200. And and so it's rapid growth. And, and when you grow this way, you know, like, there's always like most of the company every year at the end of every year are new people. Uh, and so what you have is you have the, the core of, of what it is that you do, those four values, you know, the, the things that matter most, you know, are embedded. But I think at the end of the day, the most important thing is to hire the right people because you can't kind of go off and teach them. If, if there's like some tiny fraction of them that need adjustment, that would work. But if you're off the mark, you know, you can't, you can't get it. So, you know, we're, we're as much as painful as it is, you know, we, we do quite a little, quite a few interviews and, you know, culture is a big topic of it. And I think every time the, um, 
the, the good news is that you know at every phase people are worried at, at every kind of annual uh, case every time you know we get new people i always no matter what the size i've been asked how do we scale the culture like the culture here mm-hmm. is awesome same you know, here yep. great how do we scale the culture and it's a good we need to keep keep staying on it but we've succeeded so far mm-hmm. so i think the core values have stayed uh, reasonably the same you know with some with some evolution I think the primary thing is uh, probably specialization. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe the first iteration was the growth of the go-to-market. So at the beginning, it's a very R&D, R&D, R&D type company. Over time, the company uh, has a has a bigger, a big and then bigger component that needs to bring the goodness to the world. Mm-hmm. So you, you need more people out there servicing, getting to customers, getting deals done, servicing those customers. Uh, and I think that's the nature of the beast. That's, that, that's what you want to do. But it does change the dynamic of the company because we're very one team. There's actually like a really, really good relationship between people. Uh, and we don't really, it's not very hierarchical. Um, and so I, I do think we have a very healthy relationship between the groups. And then, you know, within the teams, every individual job now becomes of a sufficient scale that you now need specialists, you know, anywhere from mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning, someone is just doing marketing and then you need demand gen specialists. And then within demand gen, you need events and then you have specialists in ads and then you have specialists in SEO. Similarly, in the, in the R&D side, you have people that specialize on specific areas. And then I think the phase that we're in right now over the last year or two, a lot of it is around scale. Mm-hmm. So we did, and that does imply hiring slightly different talent and for some people to sort of level up or evolve their thinking, which is uh, to really think about, think longer term in terms of the technology and investments that we're doing, making investments to reduce tech debt so that we that we scale. But similarly on the sales side, moving from hiring great people and just relying on them doing the right thing mm-hmm. to actually trying to build methodologies that you can grow people into and, and in turn, that allows you to hire more junior people, which mm-hmm. also helps you tap into more diverse backgrounds and, and, and build them and grow them into it. So this notion of, of scale, you know, we, we call it uh, uh, building the platform you can build on is, uh, is a big emphasis these days. And uh, I don't think we've totally neglected it before, but I think at different points at the beginning, it's around finding the fit. Later, there's a lot of hustle around just sort of scaling and brute forcing through it as the uh, wave of, waves of demand arrive. Uh, and then now I think we have enough kind of fortitude, enough you know, stability that although there's a million things we want to do and a million things we want to build, we we can and need to sort of think long-term in our uh, uh, methodologies and investments and to create yeah, more scalable products, whether that product is literally the product or it is mm-hmm. the organization or it is the sales methodology, et cetera, et cetera. I, most people listening will not ever have worked in a B2B company. And I think the point you're making is really fascinating, how you cycle through R&D phase, product-led organization, and then kind of all of a sudden sales. And so if you walk into Google in London today, oh, you worked at Sky, you worked at Sky. You know, most people worked in a sales or, and marketing organization nowadays. And people complain it has changed the culture. And so I find it amazing how you talk about intentionality, the values, and and actually making it better. And I totally agree. That's one of the most challenging dimensions. And you you briefly touched up on diversity. Obviously, you know, technology, really, really hard. If I look at all the functions we have at Gusto, you know, brand, product, marketing, I mean, you have 60, 70% female. And then you look at technology, Got a couple of hundred people working in technology. It's it's kind of inverted. How how do you feel about it? What's you know what are kind of the solutions in the next ten years? 
Yeah, so I, I, I think it's a it's a real problem. You know, the problem starts from a society problem. You know, we kind of chase women away from from technology all the way from from the beginning when when girls are less inclined to get into sort of STEM professions because it might not be girly enough or sort of a female enough. All the way through to sort of chasing them with sort of tones and such in the industries and mm. uh, and so so we have to fix those. We have to work as a society as a community. On fixing those, I think part of that solution is for organizations to, to sort of invest in first and foremost having like an inclusive environment. So try to sort of avoid those mistakes within your company and be inclusive to people. Tap into those different perspectives, embrace them versus uh, versus chasing them away. Second is uh, make extra effort to to find and nurture those talents. Mm-hmm. In the case of of like senior like senior female engineering leaders, there just aren't enough of them. Period. So we're kind of between the companies chasing, you know, who gets them, you know, in in those. Uh, and so, in a tactical front, it's worth investing in trying to find those people. But like as a as a as a society as a as a group as a as an industry, we have to build from from the bottom. So I find it even more impactful to invest in. Uh, in 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 junior programs, in associate programs, in leadership programs, in which we, you know, I'll kind of say um, uh, disproportionately invest in growing talent and and investing in them in leadership. So we do we do a lot of that, you know, just trying to kind of grow, uh, identify young talent. We've done, for instance, a good example is the SE team. At some point, our sales engineering team, Texas, was all men, and it wasn't intentional. It was a great team, but it ended up sort of being all men because that that uh, profession actually lacks a lot of women. And so we started early on an internship program, an associate SE early mm-hmm. on, and invested. And now the situation is much better. I, I don't know exactly what percentage it is. It's not majority yet, but there's a really good representation of women in that team now. Built from that, and they're amazing. But they 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 needed they might not have had the same type of background you would have expected when you were hiring. So we have to we have to think about that. Yeah, and I think you know long term you know we have to generally I believe that diversity makes us better because you blend in different mm-hmm. opinions, and the the result of that is is better. You know, uh, Peter has a uh, our CEO has a finance and sales background. You know, versus me, who I'm a techie, I'm a geek. You know, I'm a product person. So when we the two of us think about a problem, we start thinking about it from a totally different place. And if we both reach the same conclusion, we have very high confidence that that mm-hmm. conclusion is correct. Mm-hmm. And you know, so that's one example. But fundamentally, diversity is about that. Think about problems from multiple directions, and you'll eventually get to something that is better. But that requires conversation. So that requires bringing in different voices. Sometimes that slows you down. Sometimes that's uncomfortable. Sometimes it means accepting you might be wrong. And so. I think it's just a it's a muscle that I think the best organizations evolve to to be inclusive, not just for the sort of the you know the moral and the values, all of those are important as well, but rather for for actual kind of a eventual better output because you you fed in more brilliance you know into uh, into your decisions. Love the points and the the commitment you're having at Sneak. That's awesome. Just as a final question, I mean, you've accomplished so much. Sneak, huge now, second successful startup. You've seen so many places, CTO, CEO, board member, chair, everything. 10 years from now, 20 years from now, what's kind of the dream? And obviously, you're completely committed to Sneak. But imagine Sneak gets gets bored. You know, what will happen next? I think, yes, yeah, Sneak Journey definitely sort of still has good legs on it. 
So for me, the next step is probably one of uh, philanthropy. So I've uh, I've now kind of officially started a, a tiny uh, sort of foundation. Wow! Uh, and uh, eventually, I'm starting to learn how to give away all this money that I'm making from uh, <laughs> uh, from Snake to it, which which is a product in its own right. So I've got a, a V zero point one uh, out there now <laughs> with some uh, uh, very very nascent uh, activities in it. Learning, you know, what's a uh, what are the problems I'm really most keen to uh, to tackle? What are the uh, approaches I relate to more versus others? Uh, and and I think that's probably going to be where I invest the majority of my energy uh, once the snake journey is done. Love it. There's a great book called Die with Zero, which kind of makes the point: don't don't wait until your death dead, right? Give, give away the money you have. And amazing that you're doing that um, at this age. Any any kind of topic that immediately comes to mind where you definitely want to focus on? Yeah, right now I'm very drawn to generally to social inequality and, and sort of social justice. You know, mm -hmm. I feel which it touches a little bit on the diversity topic we discussed, but it's fundamentally as a society, as a capitalist society, you know, we are mm -hmm. uh, we're we're sort of broadening and growing the gaps between uh, between the different layers, and we have to try and think of of fundamental changes to do it. And I think tech, just like it democratized so much, uh, I think. In, in certain places, tech and even like crypto and Web3, they, they offer disruptive opportunities. So the foundation is actually called the Disrupt Foundation. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's, uh, you know, the idea is to try and think of other ways to work. And it doesn't mean you have to go radical, mm -hmm. but it means it's it, it means embracing a bit of a venture mentality to try mm -hmm. and think about how do we not just, you know, open a soup kitchen, which are important and I, I, I appreciate them, but they're not going to fix the problem but rather try to think about solutions and at the same time, you know, lobby governments and such, but don't rely on, on things happening at the end. So root cause, not symptom fixing. Exactly. Love it. Amazing. I mean, huge um, congratulations to all you've achieved and thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks, Timo. Fun to be on and uh, thanks for having me on.